Great. Do you want to come and have a seat? And we're going to begin. I've left my Bible at home. I'm a bit annoyed. I like having my own Bible to scour through. Um, well, no, no it's, it's my, I like my own one. <laughs> I'm excited about this. I really enjoyed Bill's last talk last month. I found it really, really uh, good food to eat. So we're about to start on number two. Is this part, this is part two, isn't it? Great. So I'll pray. Lord, thank you uh, for this opportunity to be in the Bible together. And we pray that you feed us through what Bill teaches us. We know that you will. Amen. So, um, when I was talking with Alice about this series um, a couple of months ago, the idea was we'd look at uh, John chapters 14, 15, and 16, which is John's account of everything that Jesus says uh, to his disciples during the Last Supper. So, it's early on the evening when he's about to be betrayed and then tried. Um, this, this long passage in John's Gospel, um, it's often called the, the Last Supper Discourse or the Farewell Discourse. Um, but then, how do you make God laugh? Uh, you tell him your plans. So th- those are my plans. Um, and then about a month ago, it had become just chapter 14 because, you know, that was clearly where the action was. And now it looks like it's going to be verse 6. So this, this series is just looking at um, one saying of Jesus. Um, and it's probably the, the most important saying. It's, it's the summary. So some theologians say it's, it's the summary of the entire of John's gospel. When Jesus says to his disciples, I am the way and the truth and the life. Um, some, uh, it's... It, it's in, in some ways, it's the summary of all the themes in John's gospel. They come together. And so last, last month, we looked at I am the way. Uh, this month, I am the truth. Um, can you guess what we're doing next month? So uh, truth is an interesting topic at the moment. I, I, I'd argue that truth is a bit of a battlefield at the moment. Um, Fifty years ago, it was a battlefield in French universities. Um, and you had people like Derrida and Foucault and Lyotard arguing about truth and does truth even exist? Is there absolute truth or is all truth just relative? Is it your truth and my truth? And the idea that anyone who claimed to have the truth, all they're doing is making a power play. But what was, a, what was a battle in French universities 50 years ago is now out in the open. You know, it's everywhere. Whether you're looking at uh, the Donald talking about fake news, um, when, whether it's Oprah interviewing Harry and Meghan and asking Meghan to tell her truth. Do you, do you um, remember that? Tell me your truth. Because that's all you can ask these days is what's your truth? versus my truth. Um, I was reading this week about, did you see this? Um, 
Cambridge University has a professor of misinformation. Um, he's a, a guy called Sander van der Linden. And Sander van der Linden, the professor, Cambridge University's professor of misinformation, was caught creating fake Wikipedia accounts in order to edit his own Wikipedia page, in order to boost his, his own Wikipedia page. This is Cambridge University's professor of misinformation. So truth, you know, truth is a, it's a kind of topic of argument today. There are these cultural battles being fought over what is truth, your truth versus my truth. And it's tempting to think that this is a modern phenomenon, that this is... Sorry, that's a bit breathy, isn't it? This is a new idea, this, this, this uh, contest over the truth. But not so... Um, I love this bit. This is uh, a few chapters later on. This is um, in John's Gospel at the trial in front of Pontius Pilate. And we see this exchange between Jesus and Pilate. Uh, Jesus answered, you say that I am a king. In fact, the reason I was born and came into the world is to testify to the truth. Everyone on the side of truth listens to me. And listen to what Pilate says. What is truth? I feel I ought to say it in a French accent. I mean, you know, Pilate proves himself the forerunner of Derrida and Foucault and Lyotard. What is, does truth even exist? Says Pontius Pilate. Um, But Jesus is having none of it. Jesus boldly says, I was born, no, no, sorry, same, same passage. I was born and came into the world to testify to the truth. Jesus is adamant there is something which is the truth. He rejects Pilate's idea that there's no such thing. And, and in, in the passage that we're looking at, in John 14, verse 6, Jesus says, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So my first question today is, what do you mean? Because just like saying, I am the way, it's ambiguous. It could mean all sorts of different things. So when Jesus says, I am the truth, um, what does he mean? Did he have a specific meaning in mind when he said, I am the truth? And, And my argument is, yes, he did. Because there's a dominant theme right from the very start of John's Gospel, from chapter 1 all the way through, one of the major themes in John's Gospel is the truth. And there's, a, there's an idea that comes up time and time again, which is that Jesus shows us the truth about God. Jesus shows us the truth about God. Jesus shows us what God is like. And I would argue that that's the particular idea that Jesus has in mind when he says, I am the truth. Uh, For example, um, one tip for reading John's Gospel is that um, the the first half of chapter 1 is often called the prologue. And it's a bit like uh, the overture to to an opera or a ballet uh, or a musical. And you know in, in the overture, the, the, the bit of music at the front that introduces the evening, you kind of get all the greatest hits packed in. 
so that you get, a, you get familiar with the, the biggest hits, so that when they come up later in the show, you're, f you're already familiar with the big tune. And, and the prologue, the first 18 verses of chapter 1 of John's Gospel, works in exactly like that way. It's kind of like a, a, a summary, a preview of the, the biggest hits, you know, the, the main themes that John's about to um, unpack. Now let's have a look at a couple of verses from, from the prologue. Uh, next slide, please, Rick. So this will be familiar. You know, it, it starts, in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. But verse 14 says this, The Word became flesh and made his dwelling among us. We have seen his glory, the glory of the one and only Son, who came from the Father, full of grace and truth. Now listen to this, no one has ever seen God, but the one and only Son, who is himself God and is in the closest relationship with the Father, has made him known. Jesus came in order to make God known. If you want to know the truth about God, look at Jesus. Jesus is the best picture, the, the clearest image that we can have of what God is like. Look at Jesus, you're looking at God. Um, and, and this idea that, that Jesus came to show us what God is like is repeated again and again and again through the gospel. But it reaches a crescendo in the passage that we're looking at. In John 14, 15, and 16, this idea kind of reaches fever pitch, this idea that that Jesus shows us God. Um, let's have a look at the, what immediately follows verse 6. Verse 6 is, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Well, let's have a look at the conversation that follows that statement. Um, next slide, please, Rick. Jesus answered, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Now listen to this, verse 7. If you really know me, you will know my Father as well. From now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip, I love the disciples here. They're just completely lost. They ask the, the, the questions that show that they're just not getting it. Philip said, Lord, show us the Father and that will be enough for us. Jesus answered, don't you know me, Philip, even after I've been among you such a long time? Anyone who has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? Don't you believe that I'm in the Father and the Father is in me? And on and on it goes, the same theme again and again over the next couple of chapters. If we've seen Jesus, we've seen the Father. The reason Jesus was incarnated, became human, lived a human life, was to show us what the Father is like. When Jesus says, I am the truth, I think it's a big, rich idea, and it includes a number of different things, but I think dominant among them is this idea that Jesus is showing us the truth about God, the truth about what God is like. If we want to know what the Father is like, look at the Son. I, it's interesting that um, last month... Sorry, I'm really struggling. Last month we were looking at I am the way. 
And again, I, say, I suggested that that actually has a specific meaning. When Jesus says, I am the way, I am the way to the Father. And here he's saying, I am the truth, meaning I am the truth about the Father. Um, and in fact, the, the two work together. One of, the, one of the ways in which Jesus is the way to the Father is he shows us what the Father is like. He shows us who the Father is. These ideas work together and, and build on each other. Jesus is our best, clearest picture of what God is like. And this is a key theme, not just in John's Gospel, but throughout the New Testament. In Luke, in Paul. Uh, one of my favorites is Hebrews, the opening of Hebrews. Um, can we have the next slide, Rich? This is just to show you that this, this isn't just John. This is a dominant theme throughout the whole New Testament. This is how Hebrews uh, introduces his letter. In the past, God spoke to our ancestors through the prophets at many times in various ways. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his son, whom he appointed heir of all things and through whom he also he made the universe. The son is the radiance of God's glory and the exact representation of his being. The Son, Jesus, is the exact representation of God's being. If we want to know what God is like, if we want to know who he is as a person, look at the Son. Look at Jesus. I think this is such a fundamental idea. It's such a, a key concept throughout the New Testament. And I think it's one that gets less attention than it deserves. And I, I think if we don't really, really buy into this idea that Jesus shows us the Father, we'll struggle in a number of different ways. More, more positively, if we do get our heads around this idea that when we're looking at Jesus, we're looking at God, we're looking at what God is like, then it'll help and strengthen our faith in all sorts of different ways. And what I want to do for the rest of this morning is just focus in on one way in which holding on to this truth that Jesus shows us what the Father is like, how it can transform our Christian lives. Um, and it was prompted by a, a conversation that um, we had on the out. We've been running an alpha course with the young people, and um, I think it was the first or second evening. Um, I had this fascinating conversation with one of the teenagers, um, and on the alpha on this this particular evening on, on the alpha course, the the main idea is that being a Christian, living a Christian life, is at its heart about a relationship with God. That's the thing that's emphasized on this evening on the Alpha Course. It's all about a relationship, having a relationship. Um, and this, this young person said to me, well, that's great, but how? How do you have a relationship with God? I mean, for, for, to begin with, how do you have a relationship with someone who's invisible? Okay. But also, how do you have a relationship if you don't know what they're like. How do you have a relationship with someone if you don't know what they're like? Because what do we know about God? All we know is he's omnipotent. He's omniscient. 
And they, they kind of reeled off a list of abstract statements about God, truths about God, which are true, but none of them tell you what God is like as a person. And what they were saying was, how, how can you have a relationship with a set of concepts, with a set of ideas? If you want a relationship that's, that's a real relationship, it has to be a relationship with someone who's a person. If you want to love someone, if you want to trust someone, if you're going to obey, if you're going to really know someone, you need to know who they are. You need to know what they're like. And it strikes me that that's a really, really good question and a really important question. A profound question. How can you have a relationship with a set of abstract concepts, a few statements of truth? You can't. You you can believe them. You can accept them. But you can't have a relationship with them. You have a relationship with someone who's a person. And I thought the question was really revealing. Because it's revealing of, I think, a gap in understanding. They're absolutely right. In order to have a relationship with God, we do need to know who he is. We do need to know what he's like. And if we really know Jesus, we'll really know who the Father is. And we'll really know what he's like. That's the reason he came. The reason he came was to show us who God is and what he's like to show us the Father. And if we don't get that, we're going to struggle to have a rich, deep, trusting relationship. I think the problem is the way we read the Gospels often. Um, We do something which is what I call Bible study. We, We have a Bible study approach to reading Scripture. And it it treats the Bible as though God has given us, it's a bit like he's given us a bucket from a gold mine. And in that bucket is a whole load of mud and rock and gravel. But lost in there somewhere is just a few tiny gold nuggets. And our job is to sift through all of this stuff and see if we can extract the gold. And so we read the Bible with that kind of approach. We say, well, here's this story about someone who lived a long time ago. Now, out of that, can we extract something which is either a truth about God? You know, he's he's omniscient, or he's loving, or he's kind. Or can we extract um, an, an ethical command? You need to live your life like that. You need to forgive your enemies. Or can we extract a a promise to claim and to cling on to? If you confess your sins, you'll be forgiven. But it's like, it's it's these little nuggets that we extract which are the good stuff. And that's what we're looking for. And the rest is just rubbish that we need to discard once we've done that extraction of the spiritual truth or the ethical principle. Um, And we we can do that. It's legitimate to do that. But if if that's the only way we read the Bible, if that's the only thing we do with it, then as a consequence, 
we'll have very little to feed our relationship with God. Because you can't have a relationship with an abstract principle. I'd like to suggest an alternative way to read the Bible. I'd like to suggest God didn't give a, give a, God didn't make a mistake when he gave us biographies of Jesus in the four Gospels. Now, th- this first idea suggests that what he really should have done was give us a kind of uh, theology textbook or a self-help manual with all of those nuggets put together in a handy form because so well, that's, that's the good stuff. But what he gave us was these stories, and these stories show us what Jesus is like. The the stories tell us how Jesus treated others, who he was as a person, what he was like. And I'd suggest that if we get into our thick heads that what he's showing us is what God is like, then that's exactly what we need for a relationship with God. Because what we need to know is God as a person. We need to know what he's like. For example, let's just think about John's gospel. John chapter 2. Jesus goes to the temple. What's he like? He's angry. He's confrontational. He's offended. What we get a glimpse of is how God is angry, confrontational, and offended by some of the things he sees in the world. Read chapter 4, when he talks to the Samaritan woman at the well. What we see is he's playful, he's creative, he's affectionate. We get a real sense that he's a real person, and the kind of person he is. What we need to understand is he's revealing to us who God the Father is, and what God the Father is like. Read chapter 11, and... And Jesus is standing at Lazarus' grave, and we see him deeply moved, deeply grieved, uh, sensing a real sense of the, the, the damage that death does, suffering. What he's doing is showing us the Father. He's showing us what the Father is like. We read these passages about the Last Supper, and we see Jesus' concern for his disciples. He's about to leave them. They're going to be on their own. And his massive concern to equip them and encourage them and embolden them for this challenge they're about to face. And we realize that that, that's what God's like. That's who God is. That's how God sees us. We see him at the trial. We see him talking to the chief priests and to Pontius Pilate. And what we see is boldness and courage, but also incredible self-control, self-possession. He knows exactly what he's doing. He's in full control, even at this pressured moment. That's what God is like. And finally, with the final chapter, we see him restoring Peter. Even though Peter's failed, Peter's betrayed him, run away. And we see Jesus' compassion and his mercy, his desire to restore and to to, um, set Peter on on the road again. That's what God is like. Jesus is showing us who the Father is and what he's like, and that's what we need if we're going to have a relationship with him. Is God a 
a person. Is God a person? I think sometimes we have this funny idea that Jesus is somehow half human and half God. Okay, somehow he's a hybrid. There's a bit of him that's human and there's a bit of him that's God. And it's mixed up in this person of Jesus. And when we see Jesus being compassionate or hurt or emotional or playful or humorous, well, that's clearly the human side. That's the non-God bit. Where do we see the God bit in Jesus? Well, that's when he does something supernatural, like calming the storm or turning water into wine or healing leprosy. And so Jesus is somehow this fusion of a bit of human, who's like one of us, because he's a person, and then a bit of God, because he's this supernatural, supreme being who's unmoved and has no uh, personhood. I think that's an complete and utter misunderstanding. If we're people, if we're persons, if we have emotions, will, character, if we're able to make choices, if we're creative, imaginative, then that is just a pale reflection of God's personhood. We're made in his image. We're like that because he's like that. He is a person, and we need to get our heads around that. I suggested this on this Alpha course, you know, that the best way to think of God is as a person. And it was a, a, it, it was a surprise to most people in the group that that's how you can think of God. And I think that's disappointing. That's a shame. Because the Alpha Course is absolutely right. The goal of the Christian life is a rich, deep, strong relationship with the person who is God. It's about love. It's about trust. It's about obedience. It's about communication. But you can only have that with someone who's a person. And to build that, we need to know what he's like. We need to know who he is. So here's my conclusion. Read the Bible, you heathens. Is something I would never say, because that's rude and confrontational. Um, what I would say, I'd say it completely differently. I'd, I'd say, I know the Bible's difficult. But often we make it difficult because we have this approach to it, which is we've somehow got to extract from it truths that are lost in there somehow. But it's about translating it into something that's useful. What I'd suggest is there's, a, there's another way to read the Bible, and a way that will feed our relationship with God um, in a completely different way. If you struggle to read the Bible then start again from scratch. Have another go. But I'd suggest doing it like this. Just read the Gospels. Forget the rest. Start with the Gospels. Doesn't matter which one, any of the Gospels. And read a story of Jesus interacting with people. And ask yourself, what is he like? Who is this person? 
What do you notice about him? What strikes you? And in particular, is, is that Jesus is interacting with people like us. So is there anyone in the story who you identify with? Is there someone who's going through something like what you're going through? Is there someone who's struggling with guilt or failure or a challenge? What is Jesus' attitude to that person? What does he say to them? What does he do with them? How does he treat them? What's he like with them? And then make the jump and say, okay, if that's how Jesus treated that person, that's a pretty good window into how God sees me right now. This is what God wants to say to me. This is what God wants me to know. This is how God feels towards me. This is what God is looking for from me. And then the final step is just to try and take that into our lives and live with it. Live with that understanding. Live with that knowledge as we're going through whatever we're going through. See if you can hold on to that understanding that as we're facing this challenge, as we're dealing with this problem, as we're experiencing this disappointment, this guilt, whatever it is, that we have our Father who is really there and really with us, but also we know his attitude towards us, we know what he feels towards us, we know what he wants to say to us. And I think what you'll find is if you do this, the Holy Spirit will take it, and he'll make it come alive. It, 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 becomes, it, it changes from being head knowledge to something that we experience. We begin to experience the rich presence of God in our lives more deeply. That's what I reckon. Give it a go. That's it. Thank you, Bill. Thank you. We're going to respond in worship. Um, Matt's going to lead us in... uh, so we're going to start with when I survey the wondrous cross, that, that song that expresses the uh, the love of God, expre- starting with the with the death and resurrection of Jesus. So, should we should we stand? If you'd like to stand, and uh, great opportunity to respond in worship.